place is part of this person's support system. We often try to compartmentalize that and say, well, you know, the emotionally traumatic event, especially if it happened outside of work, is outside of work, and this is work. And it's our belief that that is not the right approach. Welcome back for our first episode of the new year. Happy 2021, folks. I'm your host, Kirby Green. Thank you so much for joining us for this new year on the Sharpen Podcast. I think our guest today is going to be a great way to kick off the new year. You know, we want to be thought leaders here on the Sharpen Podcast. And when it comes to the workplace, a huge area that lacks thought leadership is the area of grief. Now, I think for many of us, that can be a really tricky term, right? What does that mean? How does that impact an employee at work? And then not just in the workplace, but beyond. We're so delighted today to have a guest and a new friend of the Sharpen podcast, Anthony Casablanca. He joins us today as a member of the team, Grief Leaders, and sharing from insights from his book, he tells us a little bit more how as young professionals, we can navigate what it means to be a grief leader. So we're going to drop right into my conversation with Anthony. Anthony, welcome to the Sharpen podcast. It's good to see you. We've talked on the phone, but it's great to see you here in quotations in person. <laughs> oh, same here, Kirby. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've so enjoyed connecting with you and hearing a little bit about your story, but tell us uh, for those that are meeting you for the first time today here on Sharpen, tell us about who you are. Sure. So my name is Anthony Casablanca, obviously, and I actually grew up in the Bronx, New York. So I lived in New York till I was about 13 years old, and then we moved to Dayton, Ohio. So I really grew up sort of in the Midwest. I spent my teen years in the Midwest, graduated from Wright State University outside of Dayton, Ohio, and then spent a couple of years working for Arthur Anderson in Cincinnati. And then I took a job with Hill and Brand, and that's where I spent 31 years of my career working on most of the time on the casket side of their business in various leadership roles. And then uh, the last three years, I actually ran a company for them called Rotex in Cincinnati, Ohio. So the last dozen or so years of my career, I spent in senior leadership roles from the VP of HR to the vice president of global manufacturing and logistics. And then finally, as the president of an operating division. So many diverse experiences there. You know, that's maybe not the focus of our conversation today, but why not take advantage of your expertise? What's your call out to young professionals? We're in the first 10 years of our career. You've had a, a variety of leadership roles. As you think back on that, what advice would you give us? Because you've kind of lived it firsthand. Sure. Yeah. So a couple of things. I learned a really valuable lesson at a point in my career where I was sort of maybe plateaued or it felt like Mm -hmm. I had plateaued. I realized that my whole career, I had been sort of chasing, climbing the corporate ladder. Mm -hmm. And then I got involved in a series of projects at Batesville Casket Company that were very impactful, um, both for the organization as well as our customers. And I realized that my title really didn't matter. Mm -hmm. But if I was working on impactful things, I got a lot of enjoyment out of that. And almost the moment that I started thinking that way, my career flourished, which was amazing. And so as I stepped back, I realized, you know, it's not as important as maybe climb the ladder as it is to just work on impactful things. The other one was I learned how to live my life really, but my career in particular with a sense of intentionality. Instead of just getting up every day and playing the cards that are dealt, 
trying to to actually have a purpose to to the day, to my life, to my career, and going about that with a sense of intention was another valuable lesson that I learned. That's so good. I think there's probably, we joked uh, earlier on our phone call, we had many other episodes to come. That's probably one in and of itself where we could dive into that further, but I knew yeah. we needed to take advantage of having you from that. Tell us about the work that you're currently doing. Yeah. So my brother and I, my brother is a licensed, duly licensed funeral director. He's mm -hmm. been working in funeral service for a couple of decades now. He's had some businesses of his own as well. So he and I came together. I, I've got some funeral service background from mm -hmm. the supplier side. He obviously deals with grieving people day in and day out. Sure. Although leaders tend not to think about this, in my leadership career, I dealt a lot with grief, although at the time I didn't realize it. Shutting down, we shut down a plant in the Northeast. We mm. took a shift out of another location. Family members dealing with significant illnesses, direct reports going through divorces. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I navigated through all of that over my years of experience. So Guy and I came together and we decided that as we research this, grief in the workplace is a big issue. Yeah. $75 billion a year in lost productivity just in the U.S. is attributable to grieving employees. And we realized that with our experience and our backgrounds, that we could impact the world of grief from a very different perspective. There's mm -hmm. a bunch of people who do grief counseling for individuals, but no one teaches leaders how to deal with grief in the workplace. And so we decided that uh, maybe that was the path we should go down. And the project quickly moved from being a, a piece of work to a mission to a passion. And, and that's how the book came to be. Well, it sounds like, too, even as you shared prior experiences, I mean, all of them weave together to the, the perspective that both you and your brother have. Start us out though here, you know, the word grief can be interpreted very differently, but define that word for us. And I don't know about you, Anthony, but uh, if you hop on LinkedIn or Twitter long enough, especially in COVID, there's a lot of discussion around what is grief and the articles would right. be differing, but would love for you to just start us there today for our audience of how would you define that word? Sure, sure. Great question, Kirby. So in our book and in our leadership training, mm -hmm. one of the major points that we try to enlighten people about is, you know, when, when you hear the word grief, you immediately think of the loss of a loved one or a death. Yes. And that, frankly, is the smallest piece, right? Any emotionally traumatic event that alters your reality will cause a person or can cause a person to go into the stages of grief. So it's endless, right? I mentioned a couple with divorce, significant illness diagnosis, a company's own initiatives around reductions in force and closing mm -hmm. plants and reducing 401k benefits and making people pay more for healthcare, all of those things that cause people stress and concern and worry and domestic abuse. The list goes on and on. With COVID, lots of people unemployed now, not yeah. coming back, getting called back to work families at home with their children think there's an awful lot going on in the world right now. And so we've tried to get leaders to realize that the definition of grief needs to be expanded to any emotionally traumatic event that's big enough to alter a person's sense of reality. And when you do that, the numbers, the numbers are large. And that is why you read so much now in social media about grief 
because people are coming to realize that what folks are experiencing and what we're witnessing in others is actually grief, not just stress. Sure. You frame that up well, Anthony, because, you know, even as young professionals listening, it might be easy to be like, well, you know, maybe folks that are listening have lost a parent or loved one recently to be like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. And right. And like to shut out this conversation. I even think back to whenever my husband and I had moved a lot there for a while. And I had a friend say we were struggling with a move. And she said, oh gosh, it's like you didn't grieve your move and your friendships and your community. And that was the first time that really resonated. Cause I remember being like, Oh no, 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 that doesn't apply to me. So I think you've opened up the thinking process. So, you know, as we think about young professionals in the workplace, maybe several of us, as you've defined grief can think back to an experience, whether it's right now in COVID or before, and we think, Oh man, I had the most, you know, it was a terrible experience, right? Like I'm actually still processing this because it, it went not well, or maybe it's the flip side of I've had a company or an employer organization that has fully supported me. So, you know, it sounds like you think a lot about the workplace. Tell us a little bit about what it looks like to think well about grief and your employees and where have you seen companies maybe do this really well and then not so well? Sure. So, um, you know, it's amazing in our research, every single person we talked to, whether their company was fantastic as they worked through their issues or mm-hmm. not, every single interview ended with the same sentence. And that sentence was, but if I worked for a different leader, I don't know if I would have been treated the same way. Mm-hmm. And so what that told us is that even if leaders do this well, organizations likely do not because there's no processes in place to teach leaders how to deal with this. So you get this very inconsistent treatment of people. But what we were told and organizations or leaders that do this well do a couple of things. One, they engage. They don't wait for performance to drop and manage Mm. performance. They engage the people that are grieving. They create an environment where people feel safe to raise their hands and say, I am struggling and I need help. And a lot of organizations, while their vision statements and mission statements on their walls may say that they want a compassionate culture, their actions and their behaviors send a very clear signal to people that, hey, if you're struggling, we don't want to know about it. And then, you know, the leaders who do this well actually adapt their leadership style. And after engaging with the employee, they take what they've heard and then try to go to work to help the employee in ways that may go beyond policy, but are certainly within the purview of of the leader. Those are the folks who do it those are the folks who do it well. The folks who don't do it well are the ones who assume that since you've come back to work, things must be fine. If I just ignore this, I won't make Kirby emotional. We won't have to deal with this. She'll be fine. Then Kirby's performance begins to slip. And now the conversation is not, hey, how can I help you? The conversation is you're not performing very well and we need to fix this, which just compounds the issue. And I could give you example after example after example of some of the things that we were told and some of the things that leaders have told people. Everybody we interviewed said either I wish I could have talked about this at work or I am so glad I worked for a leader who let me talk about this at work. It's really all about emotional well-being is really Mm. what this is about. 
Well, and as you defined grief, Anthony, like you kind of define life there. I mean, it's that is life. And, you know, that's why we say on Sharpen, we're for the workplace and beyond because we are whole people, right? Like we have our work selves and we have our community selves and our maybe our family. So like all of those fit together. And if one piece of that is in a place of grief, right, it impacts all the other aspects of our life. And so it seems to be, yeah, as you said, emotional wellness, and it's also just life. And I think about as you shared about how if I worked for someone different, that statement, but man, the power of doing that well, what you do in terms of cultivating loyalty, but you're talking about a lot of leadership roles. And some of our our folks that are listening, maybe they do find themselves as a people manager, or, or maybe they are what's being considered a direct report that has a manager. Can you share with us, as you think about an audience of the the young professionals, you know, they're in the first 10 years of their career. How can we think about being a grief leader in our workplace as we belong on teams? And maybe we are a people leader, but for the most part, maybe not. What does it look like to influence our culture in our workplace as a young professional? I do want to go back, though, and to a point you just made very quickly, because you talked about the different it's really about life, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't compartmentalize things. And when I was the vice president of human resources, we brought in a gentleman who had written a book. And one of the most impactful things that that I've heard about life was he said, there's no such thing as work-life balance. Mm -hmm. There is only balance. And that speaks to your point about if any portion of your life is out of balance, you are out of balance. And so I thought that might be valuable to pass along to your audience. Now for your question, look, you know, leadership is not a rank. It's not a position. Anyone can be a leader. I spent my entire career being very honest and open, both up and down the organization, speaking the truth and getting involved. And anyone can do those things. So even if the leader is not exhibiting the behaviors that we talk about in the book and in our leadership training, an individual can. Somebody can go knock on the door and say, hey, let's just talk. You got to be struggling. I can't even imagine. Is there anything I can do or we can do to help? That's all it takes. You don't have to have the position to make it safe for someone to raise their hand and say, I need help. You just need to care. And one of the things that's amazing And we've heard variations of this throughout life, right? Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. I put a little bit different flavor on that. First, you care, then you lead. And if you try to do it the other way, you'll have direct reports, but you'll never have followers. You don't have to have a title in order to care. That's so good. First, you care, then you lead. And yeah, young professionals, seasoned professionals, that is that is a motto that it doesn't matter how many years that you've been in the company or the organization that, that you can right. live by that motto. You mentioned earlier the stories that you heard in your research of, you know, the best folks did this and then... <laughs> Maybe we'll just call them the worst, the worst of the worst now, uh, right. ways that were handled of these situations, these these moments of grief in employees' lives. And, and you shared something to the degree of, you know, they made pivots and they were both relational and systematic. Can you talk through yes. that of those best practices that you saw come about in the research and the work that you did leading up to writing the book? Sure. So that's actually a a relatively difficult question to answer because there's no work. There is no body of work on this particular topic. Mm -hmm. There's lots of talk about grief and grief counseling and the five stages of grief. 
but it's all based on the individual. But as we researched, the pattern that began to, to make itself clear was when leaders actually got involved, right? When they actually had the conversation and said, I want to help you. There's a story we share in the book of a woman. I won't tell the whole story because I hope that folks would would want to, you know, read the book. But in this story, not only was she dealing with her husband who was in hospice, the company she worked for was also going through a huge reorganization and everyone had to re-interview for their job. So there were no guarantees. Mm -hmm. And she was really struggling. And she had the courage to step forward and go to her boss and say, I'm overwhelmed. I can't deal with this. And they made all kinds of arrangements for her, really helped her through things. But the most amazing thing was she got two phone calls. One was from her boss who said, going way out on a limb here, I really shouldn't be talking to you about this. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I want you to know that you're going to be made an offer. You will have a job. And she said, okay, great. She hung up. And like an hour later, her director of human resource called her and said, we're getting way out ahead of ourselves, but I want you to know you have a job. There's an offer coming. You're going to be fine. And frankly, you can work for us as long as you want to work for us. That's all great. But then this HR person said, are you with your husband? And she said, yes. And the HR person said, well, that's really why I called you. I want you to tell your husband that you have a job mm. and that he does not need to worry about what's going to happen when he's gone. What a statement about that group of people, yeah. right? To not only give her the heads up to relieve her stress, but to be thoughtful enough to know that her dying husband is worried about this as well and to take that off of his plate so that he could not have to deal with that while he was dealing with everything else was just amazing to me. But even with that story, she said, but if I worked for another mm. leader, I don't know that I would have been treated that way. Yeah. Gosh, that's a beautiful example and a story, even something that might have been an extra step in that manager or HR in the in the workday, right? But the power of that. Right. So you you mentioned that this is a story in the book that you and your brother Guy wrote and it yes. sounds like a great a great read for every young professional that wants to influence their culture. You we always say it's for the workplace and your beyond to sharpen your influence. So I can imagine that yes, we're talking in the context of the workplace, but the conversation trickles over into the the couples that you might get together with for dinner or your neighbor or the list goes on, right? Because we right. all experience life. So tell us a little bit more about the book. I mean, you, you shared your background from a work perspective, but right. a book is a labor of love. And I can imagine writing with a sibling, it becomes an extra labor of love, right? So tell us what made you want to write the book? What was the inspiration? And then also we can find it as well. Sure. But tell us about the background sure. there. Interestingly, that you sort of preface this question with the it applies to more than just work, which yeah. leadership was our target audience. But now that the book is out, and it's begun to get reviews, and we've begun to get endorsements, and people have begun to read it, we're getting lots of feedback that this applies 
mm-hmm. way outside the workplace, right? That yes. everyone should read the book. And the book is actually written in a way. So my brother wrote the, wrote the first half of the book. And the first half is actually all about grief and the five stages of grief and what, what ha- the funeral process and how to make that process go smoothly. And so that part of the book is the first half. And then the leadership part takes what my brother teed up and helps leaders frame why this is so important to to them and to their organizations. And the book is written as a reference guide, not as a novel. So you Mm. can read individual chapters. You don't have to read it from start to finish. Frankly, the book, I had not intended to write a book. (laughs) We had intended originally to just start a leadership training company. It was actually my brother's idea. He said, you know, if we're going to do this, there's nothing out there we should write the book. We should write the book on how this should be taught and trained and what leaders need to know. And so that was the start. And we did this. It's, it, you, as you said, it was a labor of love. We've done, it, it took us two years to, okay. yeah. to, to bring the book to wow. fruition, part of which was done over COVID. And all of it was done in two different states. So he was writing his half, I was writing my half, and then we put the two together. And we were actually amazed that when he cited an example of, as an instance, when our father passed away at a very young age, my father was very young. And I used that example that even though they were five chapters apart, the two examples came together very, very well. So we didn't have to do a whole lot of rewriting and all of that. But it was, quite frankly, cathartic because as you read the book, there are lots of examples, lots of stories. Every single one of them is true. Many of them are our own personal experiences. Mm. Some of them are from our research. We really learned a lot about ourselves as we wrote the book. And then as I read my brother's chapters and he read my chapters, we learned a lot about each other. That was also quite eye-opening. What we thought we knew what each other was feeling when we were going through the moments, but now having to put it down on paper, we really understand what each one of us was going through and how we both grieved the same situations very different. Well, it seems to be not only because of a, a shared experience of, of losing, you know, your father who was so young. It just seems what I think is so cool about your all story. It seems to be like, well, it just makes sense that you guys would write the book because you had such unique professional experiences to be able to just have a lot of perspective. And right. I've heard it said that when you write a book, it's as much for the audience that will read it as for yourself. And so thanks right. for sharing a little bit, I guess, behind the curtain of that. So, well, I love what you said of how we can use this at every level of relationships in our lives. So tell us more where we find a copy. I love to, you talked about broken out as a reference, like where you can go to a specific chapter. So not only tell us where we can find it, but even as you think about the leaders that listen to this podcast, any best practices, you know, read the book in its entirety and then mark the pages. And that way, whenever you, if you have a peer or a, how do you recommend to going back to revisit the curriculum? Where you can find the book, uh, multiple places. You can go to Amazon, Okay. Amazon books, the dying art of leadership. The book will come up. You can also purchase it on the Book Baby bookstore, or you can go to our website, griefleaders.com, 
uh, and go to about our book and you there are links on that page that'll take you to where you can uh, purchase the book and also on our website then you can understand better understand who we are what we do and why we do it and why it matters to an organization and to leaders. And you can engage us in a, in a complimentary consultation and, or invite us to come speak or do whatever, all from our website. So the book, it's funny that you, that you mentioned sort of how to read the book. We actually, when the book was all done, or we thought it was all done, <laughs> uh, we went back. We had a, another tip for young leaders, right? Have mentors around you. So yeah. we, had a, we had some advisors who helped us with this, one of which is the best-selling author, Ken Jennings, who wrote the book, The Serving Leader. And he said, you know, this book is very well written and it's an easy read, but it's complicated. And you guys should provide a roadmap on reading the book. So we added an author's note at the front of the book that says there's three ways to read this book. Hmm. One, read it from cover to cover, and then go back and read the chapter summaries at the end of every chapter. That's how you will get the most out of the book. The second way to read the book is to just read the highlighted chapters. And so we have stars next to some of the chapters. Just read the highlighted chapters. And then the rest of it, you can just read the summaries at the end of each chapter, and you'll probably get 50% of the meaning of the book, the value of the book. And then the last way to read it is just to go through and read the chapter summaries. If you've only got, you know, 30 minutes, you could literally read the book in 30 minutes if you just mm -hmm. read the chapters, but you probably only got the chapter summaries, but you're probably only going to get about 20 to 25% of the value of the book. So obviously the best way, read it from cover to cover. And then after that, Anytime you need a refresher, you could just read the summaries at the back of each chapter. Good. And the chapters are really clear what the chapter is about. So then you could even pick and choose, gee, I really want to talk about, I need a refresher on the do's and don'ts. It will be easy to find that in the chapter summaries. Well, that's really helpful. I don't know about the rest of our audience that's listening, but I, when I'm reading a book, especially if you take the, the conversation of grief or what we're all learning, I can imagine as you personally go through a book like that, grief in your own life starts to surface. And so I would say that's probably one call out, but I love a book that can help me be a better student. And then I can have it in an arsenal to know when to go back and how to read it. So, well, this has been so, so good, Anthony. The topic, the conversation of grief. I know when we first connected, I told you, I'm so thankful that we're in a moment, whether it's COVID or whether it's whatever is going on in, in our world, that these real conversations surface. And I know, you know, as young professionals, that that is such a value in the workplace whenever there's a level of authenticity. So as you think about this audience, and especially, you know, as you reflect back on the book writing process, but when I mean, what's the one thing that you're like, hey, hey, folks, in this area of grief, here's that last bit of encouragement that I would leave you with, you know, to leave your mark on the culture and the workplace and the organization that you are a part of. I think what I would leave, whatever the emotionally traumatic event is, and a lot of times it can often be a company's own initiatives, recognize, recognize that the workplace is part of this person's support system. We often try to compartmentalize that and say, well, you know, the emotionally traumatic event, especially if it happened outside of work, is outside of work, and this is work. And 
it's our belief that that is not the right approach, right? That leaders and organizations need to realize that they are an integral part of this person's aftercare, if you will, or support system. I mean, this person is going to spend half their life yeah. or half their day. And to your point earlier, you cannot turn this off. Emotional trauma, grief, you can maybe filter it for a bit, but at the end of the day, it's going to penetrate the workplace. Leaders need to realize that they're part of the support system for this mm -hmm. person. And if they will behave that way, and the story I shared about the woman and the HR person, and we actually got the title of the book from her because oh, wow. she said, my organization didn't just help. They actually helped me excel at work while I was grieving. And mm -hmm. that's the goal. And if you do this well, those two worlds can coexist. A person can be at work and grieving and still excel, but it takes a leader or the team to come together around them and help them. Well, well said. Well, you have, uh, you've made us think better all around. Check out the book. We will include that in our sure. show notes today. We'll include the link to find that. We find ourselves very Amazon prone, Anthony. So I appreciate the shout out to Amazon there yeah, for the yeah. young professionals. We always ask our guests that come on to, to do us two favors. The first of which is to make a shout out to someone or a group of people. So this one is going to catch your audience by surprise, I am sure. Quite frankly, it catches me by surprise every time it comes up, but it'd be a, an indication of how impactful this was. So the shout out is, and this person is no longer alive, unfortunately. The shout out is to my fourth grade teacher. So fourth grade, it was the late 60s, early 70s, right? Back in my day, when the school year ended, it was a common practice to get a little notebook, a little autograph book, we used to call them, and have people write in your autograph book. And I, believe it or not, if you saw me, I'm 6'1", 220 pounds, I've been big all my life. I was a victim of being bullied in school. Mm -hmm. And my fourth grade teacher wrote in my little autograph book that I demonstrate all of the characteristics of a great leader. And I have never, ever forgotten that. And I have no idea what she saw or even what she, what she meant, but I have never, ever forgotten that. And it has impacted who I am as a person. After all these years, I can still see it written on the page. Words matter. What teachers are telling your kids matter. So that yeah. would be the shout out. We have many teachers that listen to Sharpen and I can't think of a better way to say thank you in that story. It's just a reminder. And you need someone to have vision for your life sometimes whenever you can't picture it yourself, right? To remind mm -hmm. you of that. And I think teachers do that all day long right. with their, their littles or their bigs, depending on what grade. So Thanks for sharing that story. Tell us a little bit about a game changer. We always love to hear a game changer. It can be an experience, a conversation, but it sent your path in a different direction. I had a, several events sort of collide in my life that turned out to be one of the game changers for me. My brother and I's father passed away at a very young age, 53 years old, 31 days, pancreatic cancer. Mm. We went from gee, something doesn't feel right to he's got hours to live in literally 31 days. Oh, uh, my brother was 18. I was 29. Had a newborn child, had another child on the way, was in a work environment that was tough. And really the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was popular at the time. Mm 
And through those two events, I actually sat down and wrote a personal vision statement, Mm -hmm. which I carry with me today. And it's only been edited one time. So in Mm -hmm. my dad died in 1989, in uh, 1992, I wrote the vision statement. And it was just recently when I retired, I revisited it and, and updated it. But it has served as sort of that grounding foundation Mm -hmm. of who I really am and who I really want to be. And it's something that I don't think many people do, although every organization does it, but it made all the difference in the world to me. And it's actually, I've actually coached some other people on preparing their own personal vision statement. Mm -hmm. And when it's done well, it is really enlightening and empowering. Mm -hmm. And it constantly holds the mirror up in front of you. This is, this is the best you, you said you wanted to be. How are you measuring up? Yeah, I can't think of a better reminder too, as you think about our conversation today, I can imagine somewhere in that personal vision statement for you was to be a leader of compassion or empathy or care for your people. And that doesn't happen by accident, right? So thank you for your good work and for being focused on it at age uh, 29. And what a good reminder here today for our audience. So we thank you for your time and, and I think we're all better for it. Well, Kirby, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on the show and and allowing us to shed light on this topic that nobody wants to talk about. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Sharpen Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review. And of course, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Until next time.